And if I'm being totally honest with you, I'm never sure that what I'm doing is of quality, even if it's gotten really good reviews and even if it sells out. Welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith. Today I am talking to Alex Edelman. My thanks as ever to The Place Hotel on York Place in Edinburgh for their kind services in offering us somewhere to record this interview. Alex was the performer, the writer, creator of the best-reviewed show at the Edinburgh Festival 2018. It was called Just For Us. And uh, it was a fantastic piece of work. He was nominated for Best Show. And this conversation took place before uh, the results of those nominations came out. Um, It also took place, there's a little tiny bit in the extras about Burt Reynolds, which happened before Burt's sad death. R.I.P. Burt. Um, Getting back to the point, this is an episode I've been looking forward to for a long time. I was really looking forward to having this conversation because I think... Like the Alfie Brown and Tom Tuck episodes of old, Alex is someone who I know well enough that I can really prod him in the ribs. So I hope you enjoy that. We're going to talk about his upbringing in the modern Orthodox Jewish religion, um, which is very eye-opening. He talked about that on stage, some of the uh, more unusual aspects of his upbringing and his schooling uh, come into play. We talk about how he considers comedians to be superstars and uh, we talk about how and why and if he is in fact solicitous and pandering. Uh, Also, uh, we talk about the role of his almost director, Adam Brace, um, whose concept of barnacles will has definitely become part of um, my lexicon, my vocabulary of comedy. But we'll find out what barnacles are later on in the episode. That's enough ado. This, at last, is Alex Edelman. I have a vivid memory of you in 2014. Go on, go on. What did I say to you in 2014? Nothing. No, you didn't say anything. It was just we were um, uh, we were in the attic, and I just remember I had you very. You came to the show like the first like the first week, like three days into the festival, and no one was there, and you were sitting in the second row, and it was stiflingly hot. And I just remember seeing this old guy in the audience in a red jumper, and he had. Was this, sorry, was I the old guy? No, no, different <laughs> old guy. No, there was one of the other six people. And, and he had this bead of sweat just going down his head. And I looked in the back, and you had, because you had to, you had shifted to where you were now, like, <laughs> you had your legs up, and you were watching me, and you had a smile on your face. I've never seen anyone in a relaxed pose, like, enjoying a show, but you were literally, like, <laughs> you had your feet up, and you, were, you had your arms around your knees um, with your feet up on, like, the chair next to you. And you were looking at me, like, smiling through the whole show, laughing at stuff, but it was a, it was so funny, because that first week, I thought, this is such a bad idea. Like, why am I here? I think that, like, twice or three times in Edinburgh run, something in my brain that won't shut off just goes, why are we here? This is such a terrible idea. It's so funny, and I can't, I can't, uh, I think it's, like, hardwired into me. Why are you here? Why are you here? What do you tell you, the, the rest of the time, apart from those three times per festival where you think, why am I here? Standard. What do you think in the rest of the time? The standard. The standard of comedians is very high. This is the, this is the, this is where you get measured. And this is where you see where the bar is. People always ask about, 
not ask about, but whenever you're in, people ask questions about Edinburgh in varying forms, I think um, I'm here to see where the bar is artistically. And I try to do as much as I can of that before the festival, get an estimation of where the bar is artistically. Do you mean the bar for UK acts? Do you mean the bar for global acts? I don't really think like, US, this... UK, because I'm not like, I don't really think US, UK, I don't really see those distinctions, but like, this is the hours festival. I like hours. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. love an hour. Yeah. Because over the course of an hour, you got a lot of freedom. And people really choose those times in a specific way. And, like, there are bits that I'll remember specifically. Like, remember that show from 2014 that you did? You had that joke about a fish in the sea? Yeah. I remember seeing that, and I was like, fuck, I can't believe that I have never come up with a good bit. Like... Like for that, because I've seen a few bits like it and thought, well, that's a ruined premise. And then you did it. And I was like, no, that's the best one. And like, I'll have like a hundred of those moments during the festival if I'm doing my job and yeah, watching. Right. Yeah. So as much as, as, as much as it's important for me to be here and do the shows, it's also really important for me to be here and see the shows so that I know what people are trying to do with their hours. And I actually, I'm a pretty significant uh, thief in terms of, Uh, I'm a pretty significant thief in terms of, like, I walk out of a show and go, that person's done a thing to evoke a reaction, and I need to do a thing that is as funny as that, but also evokes a reaction. Like, like I take a lot away from, like, Rose Matafeo's show. Yeah. Like, we saw Rose Matafeo's show together, and I thought it was great, and I thought that ending was really funny. Fantastic ending. Such a fun ending. Yeah. And so I thought to myself, I need, a, I need fun endings. Like, it, it'll be that kind of thing. Like, my, the ending of my show is because I saw Bo Burnham's hour, the recorder one, Make Happy. And I thought, this is the best there is. Like, this is the best comic you could hope for. This is a genius. Because what was it about him that makes him the best in your eyes? It was, it spoke to a thing... Just a quick sidebar, I really am good at watching a comic and seeing a bunch of ideas and go, that resonates with me, that's good but not for 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 me, that resonates with me, that's a thing that speaks to me artistically. I wonder if that's evasive artistry that I've never tapped before. And so I watched Bo's special, and the end of it, there's a moment where he tells the audience, my biggest problem's you. And I always think to myself, that's how I feel about an audience. That's how I feel. He goes, I want to please you, but I want to be true to myself. I want to give you the night that you deserve, but I want to say what I think and not care what you think about it. Which is a little, like, naked for not music. Like, if you said that without, like, incredible aesthetic behind you, <laughs> it's a bit much. But I was, like, someone talking about, like, I think we're in an era that's really an arms race in terms of confessionalism. I think people are really ready to confess everything on stage. And so watching Bo talk about, uh, talk about the need for... You can interpret what he's saying in a lot of different ways, but the way that I interpreted it, the way that I thought, oh, this is applicable to me, is I don't know what the benefit of giving yourself on stage is. Like, I don't know what the benefit of, like, giving little 
Like, is there an effect when you go on stage and just talk about yourself for an hour? Like, that's either indicative of an unhealthy mind or that's possibly a reason that a mind can be unhealthy. And so the whole show is a, that you saw is about that one story about going to that meeting of, of anti-Semites. But what it's really about is, like, the kind of person I am, which is, like, you know, someone who feels the need to go on stage and talk about himself for an hour to people. And, like, I don't know why we're not always talking about how crazy that is as an impulse. Because maybe, maybe it's a little, maybe that's a little meta and a little self-serving. Unless you've done a lot of comedy, mm -hmm. you probably shouldn't be talking about why you're, you know. Yeah. You're doing, did I answer your question? I don't even know uh, if I got to it. In a manner of speaking, I think it, it brings up lots of things. Let's introduce you to people in the audience who don't know you and then come oh, back sure. to what we're talking about. So you are Wunderkind uh, Alex Wunderkind. Edelman. You, you won the newcomer in 2014. 14. So no longer a wonder, a failed protege. Well, you said you were 29. I can believe you're 29. Yeah, you're, no. you're, you'll always be 14 in my head. Yeah, you <laughs> you'll always be me. substantially younger than you were when we met. Yeah, sure. But yeah, you've known me since comedy infancy. Like you, I, we met at Top Secret in the old Top Secret, twenty twelve. Yeah. Oh my god, I was doing my last. I was my last year of college. Were you really? You were still at college. Yeah, I wasn't allowed to tell anybody because my visa situation was a little bit persnickety. Okay. So because I was on a student visa, so I was studying at RADA. I did my last semester of NYU at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, which is significantly easier to get into if you're at NYU. And uh, studying acting, I was studying writing. They had okay. offered a writing course, a dramatic writing course, and it was the first time I'd ever taken one. But I wanted to go. I want to go to Australia, actually. But the program was shut down the month I applied. So one of my professors, Doc Brown's sister, Zadie Smith, who's mm -hmm. like an incredibly accomplished novelist in her own right. Said you should go to yeah yeah that's right that's right I know even you laughed that's I was the, like that's the only way that sentence that's the only time that sentence has been said that way right oh it's so funny <laughs> like, that's she's right. a big deal in her own right that's, well, that's the funny thing I think of comedians as like first and foremost and everything so to me so it'll be like like I uh, good for her she's written a few novels I mean she'll never be gone <laughs> you know I said once to somebody who uh, I was with Bridget Christie or something. And uh, I mentioned Alfie Brown, and she mentioned Steve Brown. I was like, oh, yeah, that's Alfie's dad. And then she was like, and Jen Ravens. So I'm like, oh, isn't that Alfie's mom? And she's like, a sad world when Jen Ravens <laughs> and Steve Brown are Alfie Brown's dad and mom. But that's how I feel. Like, you know, I'm so bad about that. Like, my world, to me, like, I love comedy. So, like, I live and breathe and eat Comedy. So, so to me, yeah, it's so funny because when you laughed, I was like, "That's right." Zadie Smith is to many people. Doc Brown is Zadie Smith's brother. I would say to most people. Yeah, and here's the thing: I knew Zadie first, too. Like, Zadie <laughs> yeah, is, she's still the, the sister of a comedian. She introduced me to him. <laughs> she's the one who said, "If you're interested in comedy, my brother is a comedian in oh, London." Right. Okay. So she emailed her brother with me CC'd in and said, you should take him to see a show. And my first weekend there, he took me to Tattershall Castle yeah, on yeah. his boat. Yeah. And Michael Legg was on and he was on and somebody else. And like, I was like, hi, I'm Alex. I'm here studying uh, a program course. But I fell into London hard because I was such a terrible comedian. I was a really bad comic. I was like a club comic. 
I'm like a really shitty club comic. Are you comic. equating those two things? Oh, you were a bad comic, you were a club comic. No, but here's the thing. Some people are, I am now a fairly decent club comic. I'm a pretty good club comic. But back then I was just a pastiche of all the comedians that I'd seen in comedy clubs. And these were like, guys talk about like drinking and having sex. And I was like limited life experience in those two areas in terms of like, wasn't really a get drunk kind of guy. Wasn't really like a get sex kind of guy. So like, my club set was just like mildly offensive stuff that worked, like a bit cheeky to hear out of like a fresh faced twenty on, like one what, year old. What was uh, what was your what was your first confident closer? My first confident closer was actually about the. Have you heard of Easy Pass? Uh, no, I don't think so. Easy Pass is a thing we have in the states about how if you're driving down a highway, there's a thing on your on your windshield that that you can go through a toll booth without okay. without stopping to throw money into it. So my first joke was I would describe the scene from The Godfather where Sonny Corleone is gunned down on the causeway in graphic detail. And then I go, if that's not the best commercial for Easy Pass I've ever seen. <laughs> and people always laughed, like, politely. And it was one of those things where it was like I wrote it really early in my comedy life and did it at the end of every set for three and a half years. Yeah, like, okay, it was it. my only good joke. And everything else would change, but that one joke always stayed. And it was so, so, so funny to me. So it was that, and I also had some jokes that I'm embar embarrassed of. In terms so of let like, me just work out which way run this was. It, from your description with, uh, with working with Doc Brown, you or being taken to a gig by Doc Brown. Taken to a gig. You started comedy in the UK. I started comedy in Boston. But your Bo first closer was... No, sorry. American I started based. comedy in Boston when I was 16. Okay. But I was terrible. Like I would do... Um, it was one of those things where I saw a sign in front of a local comedy club shortly before I started comedy, which had names featured on it, four names. And I thought, oh, man, there are four more comedians than I thought there were. That means there are, like, 25 comedians, probably. <laughs> and then the next week I walked by and I saw four more names. I was like, oh, my God, there are, like, 28 comedians. Like, how am I ever going to become, like, a comedian if there are, like, 28 comedians? And then the next week I saw that, like, two of the names were the same and I was relieved. And I was like, well, <laughs> they're, only, they're only 30 comedians. It's pretty good. Because it's like Seinfeld, Cosby, Chris Rock, Don Rickles, all these guys. So I didn't know that comedy clubs really existed, like, for me. I thought it was only for, like, the big celebrities. Like, mm -hmm. I thought, like, Seinfeld would drop in at, like, Nick's Comedy Stop in Boston to perform in front of, like, the 75 people who would be there on a Friday. Because I didn't know comedian was, like, a job, like, mm -hmm. that we have. And so I would do comedy at music open mics and just bomb. Just the worst, most horrible. And not also 20 minutes of comedy because that's how long the musicians did. Yeah, right. So I was bombing like for 20 minutes. Like a lot of comics, minutes. I've done that once. Really? <laughs> I've done that once. I did 20 minutes. I did a 20-minute set. It was like my second ever gig. Oh, no. The Thirsty Scholar in Manchester. Really? Yeah. What I was your my, first ever? I had my bluff called. What was your, f I've, I've heard you mention it on the podcast, but what was your first ever gig again? Uh, Blue Posts in Kingley Street. That's right. Soho. But you went pretty well. It went okay. Yeah. I had a certain amount of, you know, experience of being in front of audiences. Sure. I wasn't funny, but I kind of held it together. That's true. And was... it was memorable to me because on the way uh, out, the, uh, the headliner, Ava Vidal, said, you should keep going, you've got a good look. Whoa! <laughs> I was like, that's like the most, <laughs> you've got a good look? That's a, you've got a, a good, good look. I'll be okay then. <laughs> I've heard people like, you know, Whitaker on this podcast, or Ellis describing like their first, you know, yeah. their first gigs and their early gigs. And sometimes I think, how could being good be even in the realm of possibility for you. Sure. 
Because I was dog shit. I was so, so, are you, so Are you bad. dog shit now looking back with the perspective of you being a good comic? Or were, at the time, was it like people were just no, howling and throwing things? And, no, you know, Stu, no one was howling. Silence. They were sitting in deathly silence. And I remember just one woman in one of my first gigs looking at her husband in the front row. And she wasn't trying to be mean. It was just so quiet. The room, the entire room heard it. She went, I don't understand any of this. <laughs> and it was gutting. It was, ex- but I became a better comic because this is a weird career move that I don't recommend. But I moved to Israel because I did a year at a rabbinical seminary in Jerusalem, which a lot of Orthodox Your family do. are Orthodox. Yeah, my is family it? are pretty Orthodox. And they are. <laughs> is, that, is pretty Orthodox one of the categories? The sect that we belong to of Judaism, and whenever anyone says like the sect of something, I think people tense up. But like, mm. we belong to, I guess, what you might informally say, we're kind of chill Jews in terms of uh, we're very religious or very observant, not very religious, but like very observant. We're called modern Orthodox Jews, okay. which is a sect that started in Poland and sort of flourished in Boston in the, in the 60s and was led by this guy named uh, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik. And he sort of made this idea that it was okay to, he kept all the laws of Judaism. He didn't, he wasn't, laid back in any of those aspects. But he did acknowledge that he struggled with faith and wondering if he was alone in the universe and, like, a very thoughtful intellectual form of Judaism that sort of grew into, like, let's be religious, but let's not be assholes about it. So, like, you know, the Jews who I grew up around were Jews who were very non-judgmental of Jews who sort of wavered or went off the derech, which is the saying of someone who becomes less religious, and uh, was sort of kept separate from... Like, you wouldn't know from looking at our attire that we were religious Jews, except for the fact that some people wore yarmulkes, mm-hmm. like my father wears a yarmulke, or has their uh, tzitzit, which are those ritual fringes, mm-hmm. those, uh, those white strings tucked into their trousers. So I grew up in a really observant home, but one that was really at ease with, like, the outside world and uh, the Beatles was a big part of my childhood in terms of, like, cultural music and, like... So we were... we're we have the same level of, of, of observance of some Hasidic Jews, mm. but without sort of the fear of, of modernity that... A lot that sort of seems to be a hallmark for these sort of like enclaves. Does that make sense? So this is Alex. I I really have a lot of affection for Alex. He is so kind of unself-conscious in his affability and in his ambition. And uh, I I really buy him. You know, I really buy him. I think he's very, he's clearly very, very funny. And uh, it's a lot of fun to hang out with him. Uh, Back to Alex in just a minute. But um, if you're on the Insiders Club, there's some lovely extra stuff there. Very juicy 10 or 11, about 14 minutes on the the concept of, uh, you know, the hypothetical formula for an Edinburgh show in which he uses some terminology from the world of magic. That's all I'll say on that. But um, if you're on the Insiders Club download that one as soon as you like as well as all of the other extra stuff available to members of the insiders club including the alex fraser episode as yet unreleased to the wider world um, and all of the other fun extra projects that i'm not going to go on about every time so let, let's let's get back to this interview in just a second um a couple of notices i found loads of cor- well like seven from the last month um 
emails from uh, the contact form at comedianscomedian.com, which had gone into my spam folder. And I have no way of knowing how long that's been going on. I answered those ones that I found. I think the spam sort of bins itself every month, maybe. So there may be people... I pride myself on answering every single one of your emails. And I was really mortified to see that some people had emailed me and... I'd managed to get back to them, but there will be people, presumably, who emailed the show who uh, who I did not know about and then were deleted from the spam folder. You have my profound apologies. If you feel you emailed me on the topic of anything important or personal um, and you would like to do so again, please do info at comedianscomedian.com. I think I've changed the settings now, so that should no longer be an issue. But many apologies, because I really do... I spend a lot of time with correspondence and um, I spend... <laughs> it sounds now like I only get seven emails a month. I can tell you there's way more than that. But um, I spend a lot of time uh, corresponding with you and um, it, it really upsets me to think that some people emailed the show not to get a reply. So apologies, do resend if you think that's you. Um, a little advert now, a little shout-out for... Um, Progress Wrestling. Go to progresswrestling.com. This was a company started by comedian Jim Smallman and uh, former comedy agent and promoter John Briley, uh, who they now do this amazing indie wrestling company based in the UK, and they are playing Wembley Arena. I don't imagine it's the two of them. It'll be pro wrestlers because it's it's proper. If you saw me doing the wrestling at Edinburgh, God, I had fun at that one uh, last year. Um, I, I have a real affection for uh, wrestling, and um, I don't know what you call it. I, I suppose American wrestling I call it, but it isn't in this case. But, you know, wrestling, wrestling, like The Undertaker, all of that kind of stuff. <laughs> He's my go-to. Um, and uh, I've got a lot of affection for it, not like a super fan. I really enjoyed doing it. That was a huge privilege. And um, I really want to support uh, Jim and John because I think they have done that exciting sideways shift in they found a niche that they love and they're going for it and I think we should be supporting them. They are playing Wembley Arena. They're an indie and it's the biggest show, biggest wrestling show in England since the 80s. It's on the 30th of September. Go to progresswrestling.com to find out more about that. Um, that looks like a lot of fun. I will be doing a charity gig in Bristol at the Hippodrome on those dates. So apologies, I can't go to that, but um, I hope some of you will. I might even see if I can tap them up for some competition tickets in return for a mention on next week's show. Why don't we try and do that? So um, uh, there we go. Um, that's the important stuff. I'm going to have a bit of a chat with you, a bit of a longer post-amble, maybe long. Well, I'm setting you, I'm prepping you for a slightly longer post-amble uh, post uh, on the subject of mental health and how hard September is for all of us uh, and maybe some of you as well. So we'll have a chat about that in a bit. Um, thank you for... Uh, I've had some one-off donations. Very kind of you to support the show, but the page on which you do your one-off donations has got a lot of stuff on it saying, I'm kind of trying not to say don't do a one-off donation. I'm trying to say, just set up a little subscription, then you get to donate to the show and you get all the extra stuff on the private podcast. But if you did do me a little one-off, maybe if you were listening to shows from a year or more ago, um, thank you very much to you. And on the subject of some of that correspondence, just having a quick look at them, uh, I do want to apologise specifically to Mara, Dorian and uh, someone else who didn't give their name, uh, a listener in Germany, very mysterious, um, but thanking me for hours of interesting and funny entertainment. Great work, German person. Um, but also, I got an email from someone called Helen, and uh, her email says, Dear Liam, wasn't sure of the best way to contact you. Saw your letter in the week's Herald read deliberate confusion over housing plans. 
It'd be easier to stop reading now, wouldn't it? Same situation in Torbay, which I've publicised in The Herald and elsewhere. If you fancy drawing more general attention to this manipulation of the public, maybe in a lively, entertaining way, I'd be interested to discuss it. I'm a local resident and poet. Good luck, Helen. I hope the uh, thing went um, swimmingly for you. I'm apologies that uh, Liam didn't get back to you because I'm not him. But I think that's the only... uh, (laughs) I don't know how you could possibly accidentally put that into a contact form on a website for this podcast. But um, good for you. Uh, Maybe Helen, being a local resident and poet, is also a fan of the show. But if if that's familiar to you, Helen, then uh, that was dated the 14th of August. Maybe it's not too late to get in touch with actual Liam and uh, and relay that information to him. So um, that will do us for now. Let's get back to this conversation with Alex Edelman. You talk in the show, uh, in your most recent show, that uh, you talk about being sent to... uh like to study the Torah? Oh, yeah, every like day. Every day from 8 till something? Every day from 8 in the morning until 6 o'clock at night, For I studied. For 12 days? years. Wait, 12. Oh, oh that, was my, that, was, that was my school. And we'd have, like, I'd say three-quarters of the classes, or 70% of the classes were Jewish-related, and then the other 30% were, like, science and English and history, but almost, like, a little bit of a tit. It would be weird because you'd go from, like, a Bible class, like a Torah study class, to your science class where you learn about evolution, you'd be like, well, you guys might want to talk. Because <laughs> you and he are speaking very different stuff, but that's modern orthodoxy. It's, you're supposed to grapple with those questions yourself. Because I remember asking, like, what about evolution? They're like, yeah, that's real. And I was like, well, what about creationism? They're like, that's what the Torah says, and we do believe the Torah. And I'm like, so how do the two fit together? And they're like, figure it out. They're like, uh, you know, I remember asking a question and someone said, literally, a teacher, uh, a science teacher who's, who had the prefix rabbi, I can't remember his last name, who went, well, it's something we grapple with every day. That's kind of cool, right? That's it was crazy. Infuriatingly reasonable. Well, he said to me, I said, well, I don't know how you can grapple with it. He went, well, how would you define days before the sun was created on the, you know, third or fourth day? He went, well, then... If the sun was created that Is that your late, question? Your question I said, is how, how do you, you define how days? Do you, how do you keep... He said, how do you define days? He's okay. like, because what if days is a sort of allegorical thing and it was these days before the sun came up were billions of years where, you know, things sat in sort of like a primordial stew and... And I was like, is that what you believe? He's like, no, 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 no. Like, <laughs> I'm not being I believe drawn. in it. He's like, he's like, I'm not doing that. He's like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> but every so often you'd have a non-Jewish teacher who would be like... Uh, well, t- today uh, we are learning about um, uh, 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 the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs did, did exist. Like, you know, it'd be like, it's that kind of thing where they weren't trying to tread carefully, but it creates this very inquisitive thing, which I thought um, people use the adjective Talmudic sometimes, which means like other pertaining to the Talmud, but also means sort of like, which is the Jewish law book, but also means like, an argumentative debating style. And those two things aren't... This isn't boring, is it? No, no, no. I'm fine. I'm not, this, I don't uh, know much about this. Yeah. This, and soon we'll find out. We'll place you within it and draw back to the yeah, thing. Yeah, so sure, Give sure. us a bit more background. So those two aren't accidents. Like, there is a whole culture in Judaism of arguing and making points. And I think it's one of the reasons I'm drawn to stand-up comedy. It feels very personal to me. It feels... Very comforting. Like, there's 
something called a bait medrash, which is like a study, literally means like a study halt where you sit and study and some Jews spend their like lives in these bait. I have cousins who, you know, are in their thirties and, you know, every day for years with almost no breaks, except for the high holidays or something, they spend their days like sitting, studying these books. And to them, it is a really good use of their lives. And I, I can't, identify with that. But what I can identify is a similar thrill of like watching a great joke or feeling a really great stirring emotion and placing it in this context of like great conversations about relationships or dating. Like it's weird to be like some great bit about airplane food is, uh, is part of the continuity of great bits well, about airplane food. It is. It is. That's a really great perspective because it is, um, it, it is a vocational career. I think almost all comedians would, would agree perhaps. Yeah. That argumentative bunch that we are. I think it is a vocational thing and you can, like I, I was talking about memory the other night that I don't sure. remember people's places, <coughs> events, dates. I've never been someone who can go, oh, that movie that came out in, you know, the sure, day sure. it won the so-and-so. I've never been like that at all, but I can remember jokes I heard in 1989. I can sure. remember the, the phrasing. It just, it feels like a continuity. And in your words, I think that's a lovely idea that everyone is contributing to the great conversation about sure. airplane food or relationships exactly. or whatever. Exactly, and I love... I love this art form, and I love that it's a young art form, and I feel very honored by this festival in terms of, I really feel, this is super self-aggrandizing, but I loved winning that award for one reason, only one reason. It, it was, it was so nice. So you could thank the girls from home. Yeah. Well, I was, I was, I, there was a reason for that at the time. I'm sure there was. Yeah. Um, I felt really, uh, actually two reasons. One, it reminds me of, I thank the girls from Hyde and the guys from 1975 yeah. because, um, not to be embarrassing, but I had no money and I had nowhere to sleep for a lot of that summer when I came over to preview. So, Heim, 1975 gave me places to stay in London uh, and it, so did Alfie Brown, by the way, and... Uh, Tom Rosenthal and Nazos Manlu. They let me sleep on their, their couch and their floor. But Haim let me sleep on a bunk in their tour bus while they went around the... Because I said, I have two days off, but I have nowhere to stay. So they... Between Latitude and something else. Yeah. So they let me... So they took me from Latitude and let me literally like sleep on their tour bus for a few days. And in 1975... Like, gave me places to stay in London, so I thanked all these. But I'm sure there were so many people who were like, why the hell is he thanking, like, two bands from, from, uh, from these random music festivals? But the other reason I was happy to win the award is I feel like it sort of puts you in this continuity of all these great comedians who I admire and respect, like, you know, Al Murray through to, like, you know, Acaster and Kearns and... You know, Bridget and all these, and Josie Long. Does, does the accolade, <coughs> does the accolade mean something to you when you say it puts you in the continuity of those comedians? One could argue that simply by being here contributing to the conversation, you are in the continuity of those comedians. Sure. What, what's the difference between being recognized by a body and just being here doing also, it? Also, it's worth saying, with no disrespect to those comics, no, I'd say I see. 20 shows here a year. And of those 20 shows, of the five that I like the most, one of them gets nominated. Yeah. Two of them get... I tend to like stand-up and straight stand-up, really good straight stand-up, which is 
my glowing heart, which is what I love. I love straight stand-up. Man with a microphone. That's what, it, to me, this is very old-fashioned. It's what it should be. Rarely gets queer man. What? Person, person with a microphone? Person with a microphone. microphone. Yeah, man with a microphone is, is, like the, is like the cliche. But yeah, person with a microphone. But like Josie Long is someone who I love. But club stand-up, you know. I'm not saying Josie Long, but I'm saying club stand-up, person with a microphone, no character, no, no, nothing. Great jokes. That's what I love. And it doesn't always get nominated. So yes, the comics that I think of when I hear my favorite comics here, most of them have never, like Alfie Brown's one of my favorite comics. Never gotten nominated. You know? The comics that I really like here, like, I don't know if Whittacombe is... Whittacombe ever gotten nominated? I genuinely couldn't tell you. I'm I can't tell you either. <laughs> it, doesn't I mean, matter. You know, it doesn't matter. Catherine's never gotten nominated. You know, have you but been does nominated? It, but does it matter to you? Does me being nominated matter? Yeah, because I can see, you know, it's not. It's a pat on the back. You know, you're a successful guy. Your your brothers are successful. Guy. Your brothers are bodybuilding. You My come from a successful are, family. Your I come dad, from a successful family. You know, your brother's an Olympian. Your twin brothers are bodybuilder. Here, here's the honest truth. Accolades don't matter, but what does matter is quality. And even the, and if I'm being totally honest with you. I'm never sure that what I'm doing is of quality. Even if it's gotten really good reviews and even if it sells out and even if I've done it a hundred times on stage and, and people have laughed at it every time and it's never bombed, there's still always going to be something in the back of my head. It's who I am. It's hardwired into me. It's the three times at the festival where I think, why do I belong here? There's something that goes, are you good? Are you really good? Because... There was a woman in the front row of a pizzeria music open mic who looked at her husband and went, I don't understand this at all. And I'm still the same person, you know? I'm still that guy who got on stage and bombs, and I bomb regularly. I have a new material gig on the fringe every day um, that I run totally separate. I don't tell. It, my, it just says, a comedian does jokes for an hour. Like, that's, I, I, I bomb regularly. I bomb almost every day, at least for a few minutes. I can get him back. Sometimes I can gussy up a joke with, with, some, with some dancing or mugging. But um, oh, nominations matter to me because it marks something out as officially good. And I shouldn't admit that. But the reason those things help is because, at least for a few minutes, it quiets the do I belong here thing. I, I buy all of this. I buy all of that. But yeah. I wonder if there is also an ambitious streak to you that is pleased to be officially good, that is pleased to be thought well of by the inverted comma authorities. I'm, I, I think that approval... I mean, as you know from seeing the show, approval is very important to me. Well, so, let, well, let, <coughs> go on. Yeah. No, you, you, you okay, go. Okay, so the, I, I really enjoyed your show. But I will answer that show. question. Yeah. I really enjoyed your show. I yeah. think structurally, you've got such a knack for structure. It all slotted together beautifully. You had big jokes. I really enjoyed the difference between you and you in 2014, 15. I feel like you've gone away and kept working and, and you are 
uh, you're really in control. You really impressed your authority on us. In a, you know, I do this, and you might not like it, but this is this. You know, I, I enjoyed all of those elements to it. You've got some great jokes. I'm waiting for the great bite, storytelling. The, the person who I am. But my most, my favourite part of it was the five minutes at the end when you talk about being not to spoil anything too sure, huge no, about no, the show. Ahead. Not a big revelation. Go ahead. You talk about being solicitous and pandering. That's a very specific phrase, isn't it? I use that phrase because Gary Goldman who's one of my favorite comics in the States, I asked him for permission to do it. We were talking, Gary and I are, he's one of my best friends. He's also, I think, maybe the best comedian I've ever seen. Um, he is... How are we spelling Goldman? Goldman? G-U-L-M-A-N. Okay. He's so good. And he's almost universally acknowledged by American comedians as the best. And it's, it's not one of those, he's not an acquired taste either. You see him and you go, oh, that is the best. Sure. He's almost like Brian Regan, but with like a little more yeah. of a Jewish hedge. Yeah. And Gary was talking about a comedian who I, who I don't like and who we don't like and who if we weren't... It's a bit much in a recorded medium, but I'd be happy to tell you after. I, I don't like him. And uh, he referred to him as pandering and solicitous. And I was having a dark moment at some point in the beginning of Melbourne. I, I get really down after long trips, after I, after I travel on a plane for long hours. As soon as I get off the plane, that is the lowest I ever feel. I don't know why, it's just something. And I thought, I'm no different from that comedian. I'm the worst comic who's ever lived. I don't belong here. My material is just me going on stage and trying to be likable. I am pandering and solicitous. And so that's where that comes from. I actually think of myself at my lowest. Sometimes a joke I do, and this makes me feel like a fraud, doesn't work unless I do a certain goofy face with it, with like my eyes on stocks or like, you know, a little gorbless <laughs> smile. And it's disgusting. And maybe that's a failing. Maybe that's a failure of writing. Or maybe that is you're acting, you're performing, sort of catching up with your writing. I think when I started, I was a better writer than I was a performer. And, may, and sometimes my performance tracking that. And sometimes I'm a little hammy on stage. And I feel it. I really feel that. Like, uh, it's, and that's the core of the show. I'm like, this is not dignified. Like, this is a, uh, this is me selectively telling an audience stuff. And if, I, if they knew everything about me, how, how desperately I feel the need to be thought of as a, to answer your question about authority and this question, I really, more than anything else, want comics like you to think of me as a peer because I love comedy to an enormous extent. And it has given me already, just being here, has given me everything I've ever dreamed of. I do comedy for a living. That's all I want. And even when I showed up here in 2012 and 2013, and I wasn't doing an hour here, and people very fairly asked me to my face, like, what are you doing here? Like, me coming back to this festival is answering that question, is answering those comics who aren't mean guys, who are, like, genuinely, like, curious, like, why are you here? Is me trying to answer that question. I just want to be, uh, you know, I just want to, to do stuff that is worthy of other comics coming to the show and enjoying it. Like that is, I'd be lying if I said that wasn't a drive of mine. 
And sometimes it makes me crazy when I see really good out there character comedy or really good out there stand-up comedy that's somehow different from person with microphone. And I think I can't, I know better than to do that because that's not who I am. But maybe one day, and, and, if I, and if I was just, if I was doing it just for the comics, then I would, then I would be doing that. But yeah, I am ambitious. Like, there's no denying that. There's no denying that I really want com- people that I respect to respect me back. It's like a huge part of my... Uh, and I feel like I owe people. I feel like I owe, you know, comics like you and like Josie and like Gary Goldman and like Tom Rosenthal or Nazos Mondo or Alfie Brown or Ivo Graham or Natalie Palomides, or anyone who's ever been nice to me, or taught me a thing, or given me a trick, or, like, you know, been, been good to me while I've been on the road. I feel like I owe it to them to do a good job. Like, I owe it to Doc Brown and Zadie Smith and my parents and my teachers and, like, and it's a lot of anxiety, obviously, because I feel like I'm... And the truth is, no one gives a fuck. Like, the truth is... <laughs> Like, I could, I could go into, you know, work in a shoe store tomorrow for the rest of my life, and most of the people I just mentioned would scarcely think about me. They'd be like, uh, occasionally somebody like, whatever happened to Alex Huddleman? they like, oh, he works at Nike Town now. Oh, that's interesting. That's a bit, a bit crazy, isn't it? He used to be really into comedy. Like, yeah, now he works at Nike Town. Like, that would be the situation. But I, in my own, like, self-centered brain, think, like, you have a responsibility that's why every show I do, even when I bomb, I stand out there at the end. So if anyone wants to look me in the eye and tell me, you suck, which has happened a few times, you know, a few people, even this festival, come out of the show and I'll say, you didn't enjoy that, huh? And they're like, no, I can tell. Not for, not for everybody, um, sadly. I'd like to be, but like, you Would know. Would you? Yeah, I, like I... I don't, I'm not out here to be like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a yeah, yeah. But can you, can you think of a, a comedian who is for everyone? Mm. Maybe Brian. Brian Regan, maybe. I, can't, I find it hard to imagine anyone could not enjoy Brian Regan. I actually, I've met a few people who are like, this is a bit much. I, I, I don't yeah, get it. Sure. But, um, or it's a bit boring, which blows But would me. you, I mean, there is a, there's a sort of sense, like if you're a singer and you're for everyone, you're a lounge singer. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> That's true. But then you're not for everyone. You're for people who don't like lounge singers. Like, I try really hard to thread the lot, the needle and try to like have my American big jokes, lots of last cake and eat my Edinburgh passionate personal <laughs> hour cake as well. Well, let's talk about the, I think you have a real knack for structure. Um, and I also think that you, thank you for that answer, by the way, the previous one. Sorry. Um, that's I, not, not at all, not at all. I thought that was an excellent I'm answer. I'm trying to be as honest as possible, but I'm sure I'll regret some of, saying some of those I things. I appreciate and respect that desire. Thank you. Um, I think that, here's something that struck me about your show. Sure. Uh, there were a, I watched it with Henry Packer, and I'm sorry Who for I barging love. into your dressing room two no, minutes No, I'm glad you did, I'm glad you did, because I missed Henry. I'm yeah, glad, yeah, he, he went I, to, yeah, yeah, I always want comics to see the show, yeah, yeah, always. Yeah, well, I assumed that was the case. Yeah. I sat there next to Henry, we both loved it, we both laughed out loud throughout. And there were a few moments in the, kind of in the middle of the show, where I felt myself kind of, Sort of, I, 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 had, I had a kind of a, oh, Alex, kind of, a, kind of an oh, Alex moment. Like what? And I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what they are. Go ahead. And you feel free to defend these accusations. Go ahead. And if this uh, goes south, we'll edit it. Sure, go ahead. Um, I think that you know what buttons to press 
in a British audience, in a festival audience, to make them what buttons to press with an audience and with kind of, you know, industry in order to make them know that you are successful and that they should be pleased that you're here. The stories in your show about meeting Prince William, yeah. and the Stephen Fry stuff, is completely unrelated to the theme of the show. I was watching that bit going, how's he going to tie this back in? I went, oh, he's not. <laughs> and to me, I wondered if that was... I don't know if you listened to the episode I recorded with Russell Brand, but I put it to Russell Brand that one of the things he enjoys doing is he will tell big stories about a funny thing that happened with him on a movie set where the subtext is... I'm on a movie set. Sure. Do you know what I mean? Is yeah. there, do you th how, do you, how do you sort of respond to that? Do you th can I those be, are funny stories. Can I be totally honest? Please. It was a big chunk of material that worked well on my Radio 4 show. And when I was building the show, um, when I was building the show, uh, those just got really big laughs in preview. And it was good material. And I didn't want to take it out. Sure thing. I know that sounds, I know that sounds, like, a, that sounds like a thing. But also... Sometimes big stuff happens, and I think, boy, I got to talk about this. Like, my brother making the Olympics has nothing to do with the show either, really. But I tie it into, like, a bit of a Jewish identity. And I tie the, I, I tangentially tie the Stephen Fry, Prince William thing into not knowing when to not be there. Because I also do feel like that's a big part of my personality that I've well, that what, I've what, what, to curtail in terms of, like... When I was, when I first came to the UK, I wasn't intimidated by anybody because I didn't know who anybody was. So I think a lot of that was like, if I liked someone like Stuart Lee, it was like, I don't think I ever did this with Stuart Lee, but like, like with Josie Long, I remember bounding up to be like, boy, I really liked your stand-up, your stand-up's really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would do that with anybody. Yeah, I know. And I, people were like, who is this guy who frankly does, it would be literally, I was an open spot. I was an open spot going up to like big headliners or, yeah, or yeah. like something. I'd be like, well, I showed up at MacFest, which is, I was, you know, my, I was studying here and Josie was like, Josie and someone else were like, why don't you come to MacFest, which is like a small, beautifully curated, it's been mentioned on the podcast yeah, a few times before, right? Um, this beautifully curated festival in Wales. And I showed up because I'm like, oh, I'm a comedian. I belong here. No, they invite people. But, like, that's my personality. Yeah. So I like, describe you to people as, like, the, you can tell Alex will go far. Because if Steven Spielberg's in the room, while everyone else is going, fucking hell, that's Steven Spielberg, Alex will already be in conversation actually, with Steven Spielberg. That, that is, that, so that's not true because I know who Steven Spielberg is. But with due respect to the UK, I don't know who anybody is here. And with great respect, they don't mean anything to me. So yet. I understand that. I understand so, like, that. the fame means, so here's the thing. I think this is a misconception. I don't see fame. I see accomplishment. That's a different thing. Like, famous people do nothing for me. People whose work I respect do everything for me. Like, I'm not going to say the name of a community to be like, that guy's not famous, but I respect him. But, like, there are a dozen comics that to me are, like, heroes. That let get. I'll say uh, David O'Doherty because he's got a level of, like, David O'Doherty, I get, like, butterflies around. Because, like, we're actually friendly, but, like, I've always given him a wide... I've given him a wide berth. Like, like, the funny thing is, to me, I've been in a room with Steven Spielberg. I would never in a million years speak to Steven Spielberg. <laughs> never in a million years. It would be my biggest nightmare. Because I could only screw that up. Because I know myself. I could only ruin that. I have, uh, I've been in a room with Steve Martin and Jerry Seinfeld, who are my two biggest heroes. And I would never.
talk, would I love to talk to them? Would I love to meet them as, that's the thing. That's how I get to you guys as peers. Like everyone here is still a hero to me. Even comics who are now, maybe I'm doing a little bit better than. Those guys are still heroes to me. And the reason I do this is for like, I saw the aristocrats when I was a kid and it was a bunch of, it's God, a that film, makes me feel old, sorry. A bunch of comedians <laughs> hanging out. I was 15 or 16. Sure. And I was like, I want that. And comedy almost, to be honest, I started it as a way to just hang out. Like I just want to hang. But so like, sorry, those stories in the show, um, I don't think those stories are uh, just name droppy, but they are um, jokes about, I think they get big laughs here. They get huge laughs. So they get, I don't so, take anything away from the no, stories. No, no, you're right, you're right. But so in, I the do narrative, it. in the narrative arc of you meeting <coughs> anti-Semitic far-right people and that being a story about identity and privilege, which is a brilliant narrative arc. It's yeah. great. And the revelation of the privilege thing is fantastic. But I think nothing says white privilege more than a dude who doesn't belong hanging out with Prince William to the extent that that's what the joke is about, is hanging out with Prince William and not thinking anything of going... Once you're in the conversation, well, uh, do you like being here? Do you like being here, Prince? You know, like, <laughs> I didn't say that, but that's the vibe. Like, sure, I sure, have sure. a tremendous amount of entitlement, which is once I'm in a conversation, I do feel entitled to talk to everybody the same. That is hardwired into me also. Like, I think I am, I think when I first got here, I was a little too direct in the way that pe I think people were like, like when I met Alfie Brown, he said to me, You're, you were in the show tonight with Tom Rosenthal. And I went, yeah, I hated it. And he went, excuse me? And I was like, he's my best friend now. And I went, I hated it. He said, why'd you hate it? I was like, because you're so funny, but you're so undisciplined. And I wasn't, and I was wrong, by the way. He was doing something that was very disciplined, sure. but I didn't get it. Like, sure, sure. But I was like, yeah, I, you know, I feel like, like, I've really had to, cur like, I have so much privilege in the sense that I grew up with, with, with being encouraged to, like, give my opinion. Like, by my parents, by my teachers, by my community. Like, your opinion was your currency in modern orthodoxy. Like, it marked you out as different and unusual. Having unique opinions that were seen as authentic was big in my grandparents' house. Mm. Like I got, I got big kudos from my from my Bubby and my Zadie from for like being well spoken at you know a dinner table. So very like, so I really feel that way. That sometimes I'm like, I really the show is called Just for Us, even though it never gets mentioned in the show because I really think that I constantly need to be reminded that not everything is for me. Like, that's a very child, it's a very childish thing, but, like, uh, the joke is in there because it gets big laughs. But it's, all, it's also, like, when I'm at my most self-loathing, I'm like, you fucking asshole. Like, you think everything exists here for your pleasure. Like, I am such a white man in that regard. Or such, like, w how the left would view a white man because I really do think that, like, I can't help it. Like, I think that... If there's a mountain, it's for me to climb. Like, that's, it, like, I can't see a thing and not want to go up it. So that is, uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't think, 
I think I'm guilty of a lot of, of definitely a lot of stuff. But I, I don't think I need uh, an audience to know I'm doing well in the sense that, like, in fact, I really wish I could play down certain, like, accoutrement from that story to make it a little, like, it's not exactly relatable to be like, <laughs> it's the poshest example. It'll turn, it'll turn some people off that joke. Like, a lot of people, I think, I think for me that is the hardest joke in the show. I don't love it because there's a lot of, there's a lot of setup. There, on certain nights, there's been dead space in the joke. There's a lot of homework to do. The tag isn't worth, isn't worth it um, in terms of saying a certain thing to Prince William after he says the big laugh. Mm -hmm. But it does complete the joke. And honestly, it's a tiny bit of laziness in terms of me not excising. Uh, I, I have a real problem, which is that my, I've been trained to accumulate tags but what I end up doing structurally is accumulating these things called barnacles, which are jokes that aren't worth the, that slow down the momentum of the show. Yeah. The momentum that you lose isn't worth the laughs that you get. Yes, I'm not agreeing in context of you, but I've never heard that phrase before and I love it. I know exactly what you mean. I do it a lot. I really do it a lot. And because like, you, because of a kind of, not you, but because one is greedy and hey, it's a laugh. I wrote I'm, a thing that gets a laugh. I'm so right? rapacious about that. Barnacles. But yeah, yeah, I slow, so I also have this thing that my, I work with a guy named Adam Brace. He works with me as a dramaturge. Mm -hmm. He follows the course of a show He's not a stand-up comic, he is, but he works with some stand-up comedians. And what he does is he follows the logic of my show and tracks all the things that aren't laughs. I worry about the laughs. I worry about the, the structure. But Adam gives notes on structure, pacing, laughs, momentum, likability, believability, all this stuff. I really am careful about it. And he's a, a genius at a few things. I don't take a all of his notes. But he says to me, he's the one who came up with the phrase barnacles. And he also came up with this phrase called clag, which is stuff in segues and setups that actually don't add anything. And I'm ruthless about one thing, which is clag. I listen back every single day to my show, every single day to try to cut down on clag. And the problem is sometimes I lose a thing that's like just for us was in the show, but it was the, the phrase, but it was a bit of clag. And there were other details of the Nazi story that I liked, but they, were, they didn't lend anything to the story and they weren't big laughs, so they got cut. And if I'm being honest, the bit about the tuxedo that, for the listening audience, <coughs> the tuxedo that I wore to the BAFTAs, the, the reason um, for that line was to set up something at the end. But then the setup got a much bigger laugh than the thing at the end, so it didn't cut either. But if I'm being a good boy, what I really should do is just cut, is just cut the bit at the end. But every night, I think to myself, tonight's the night this gets the bigger laugh. <laughs> and it never does. And then as I'm saying it, and the reaction comes, and it's still an okay reaction, I'm like, all right, well, tomorrow we won't do it. <laughs> I've got gear in my show every day. I make that decision. Isn't it crazy? Yeah, 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 what, what is wrong with it? I'm like, I'm like someone who's put money into a fruit machine a million <laughs> times, like literally a million. And like, I'm like, this is the winner, baby. And I think what happens is once it got a big laugh. Yeah. Or twice. Once it got a big laugh. And I often think once that, <coughs> that bit of mine, whatever, that got a big laugh. <coughs> and it's actually because 20 minutes ago I said something wildly different that I'll never remember. There was some inflection that set them up on some, that, you know, it was the payoff that got the big laugh. And now I'm trying to do that payoff as a joke with no setup. Thank you.
That's and that's why I listen back to my recordings for the set for the wildly different thing. Yeah. But I never managed to replicate it. And people are always like, "Are you bored of? Are you bored of your material ever?" I'm like, "No," because I'm so in the details, trying yeah. to remember all the homework that I have. Yeah. That are actually very present in the show. But some days, for some reason, the facade that is up of me doing the show and the brain that is working on the homework that I've assigned myself in the joke or the next line coming, they feel a little out of sync or something like that. So, like, that's when I don't feel especially present. But, but yeah, it's interesting that you felt that, though, Stu, because I think that's, like, important. Well, it's something I... That I think, it's something that I think about, too, because... I, I appreciate. I'm, I think there was a really good. Uh, I'm <coughs> pleased that you let me challenge you in that in that respect. No, please, and I, I, I completely, need that. I completely buy your uh, your explanation. I really do. And I, I, it's possible that I'm bringing with me a kind of a prejudicial view of what I see as your ambition. You know, and that, as long as I've known you, and I think you are an ambitious uh, person. I do. I completely believe that you live and breathe and love comedy and. You're allowed to be ambitious. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Um, I think that I always my my feeling was, and tell me if this is wrong, or tell me Go if this. On. I mean, this is this is you know, uh, this is a sort of a spurious uh, hypothetical, uh, an, an imaginative ahead. version. My feeling was when you when you got nominated for the newcomer, I used to. I don't know why. I would imagine that in your house you had like a telephoto lens black and white photo of each one of the judges on a cork board, and you were like. This is, I know these, these, okay, what's going to appeal to them? What's going to appeal to them? That's really funny. <laughs> I didn't mean that for real. No, no, that's but really you know funny. I, mean? I felt like you came here to get that award. Do you think that's true? No. But it's 1% true. You know why? Because I wouldn't, uh, I am ambitious and my desire is exactly exactly what you're describing. But... I feel less terrible now about my no, very, no, my very right. mean... No, <laughs> no, you're imagine. right. Here's the thing. You're 100% right. But, and this is real ego, I'm not kidding. I do think that the work speaks for itself. I know that sounds crazy, but, like, I genuinely think I, I wouldn't have come to the festival maybe that first year with a solo show if I didn't think I had a good shot at newcomer uh -huh. but to me the work that's done by getting a telephoto lens of every single one of the judges instead of doing that I wrote strong jokes and I brought my club set and I somewhat cynically found a structure that wasn't very real, but knew was, but knew was important. Like, like, yeah, I do that telephoto lens thing, but instead I thought, well, there's a hole that no one's talking about it and only I can talk about it. And so that's a good enough reason to do an hour. Like my first show was called Millennial. That was the first before. time I heard the word Millennial. Thank you. See, that 